who's going to be preaching this morning as we start our Advent series, and it is my friend Joe Saxton. And Joe, if you, are, if you don't know Joe personally, which I'm sure most of you don't because that would be a little bit weird, um, I'll tell you that she is an author and a speaker and a pastor, and if you want to see a little bit about the books that she's written and the one that's about to come out next month, uh, you can go to joesaxton.com. And maybe one of the most important things to me to say is that Joe is one of my best friends, and I appreciate her in my life so much. And if you want some, to hear somebody give me a hard time consistently, then you can listen to the podcast that we do together every week called Lead Stories. And if you listen to the first 15 minutes, you'll hear her give me a hard time at some point. I try to give it back, and then you can keep listening if you want to, but if that's what you're looking for, you'll get that. So would you join with me and welcome Joe Saxon. Good morning. Wow, you're real sleep. I'm going to try it again. Morning. It's really good to be with you. Real privilege. Steph made me sit there because she didn't want you to recognize the fact that we dressed the same today and we did it by accident. Um, we did not give each other the memo. Um, I don't know what she's talking about, about me giving her a hard time. I just tell her the truth um, about herself and about how things are. Um, it's, I've heard a lot about you. She talks smack about you all the time. Um, and um, it's fun to finally have a chance to be with you. I am a Brit, I'm a Londoner by birth and conviction, I'm a Nigerian by heritage and by happiness. I um, have two kids, uh, Tia, who um, Steph is her godmother. We get, our kids get to choose a godmother when they hit middle school, just for survival's sake. Um, <laughs> and so Steph, she chose Steph, so make that, well, make that what you will. I have two daughters, um, Yes, Tia, who is 12, I think she was here a week or two ago, checking you all out. Um, she is into volleyball and world domination and business. And then I have, a, well, nearly 11-year-old, she's 11 on Saturday. Zoe, she's into unicorns and glitter and justice, the store, and probably justice as a concept as well. Um, but right now, just the clothing and Lego. <laughs> And Lego, she does, she's doing Lego League today. She's in a Lego League tournament. I'm really grateful for her because I feel she's going to be the one who earns us lots of money. Um, future, I'm married to a guy called Chris who is a Scot um, and a Liverpudlian, which just means he has a generic-sounding accent, really. I think that's, that's all I can tell you. He supports Liverpool. Those of you who are soccer fans, you can pity him whenever you want for that. Those of you who aren't, that was a waste of your time. Um, <laughs> I think those are all the intro things. Um, so, um, if I may, I'm just going to pray, and then I'm going to dive in to all we're doing. And I'm going to find the clock so that we don't keep you here longer than you need. There it is. Glory. Right, Lord, I want to thank you for these wonderful people, and I thank you um, for the opportunity to think together and reflect together on who you are and all you've done. Would you meet with us, Lord? Um, you know the days we've had, the weeks we've had, the lives we've had. And we ask that you would speak, and that you would heal, and you'd restore and illuminate our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. At this time of year, I, I somehow automatically get into the idea of reflecting on the year. I get kind of deep and pensive, or just deep, and, um, and think of the highs and the lows of the year. It's not like I want to. It's like this highlight reel just starts happening in my mind as I'm going about. I'm thinking, what were the, what were the highlights? What were the great things? What were the wonderful things? What were the terrible things? And this year, when I think of my highlight reel, I'm brought to one particular day. 
I mean, there are other things, but there's one particular day that keeps on coming at me, and it's August the 5th. August the 5th, I was in Northumberland in England, and it was my brother's wedding. I have two brothers, both incredibly awesome men. And this one, the younger of the two, still older than me, got married. It, ta it had taken them a while. It had taken them a while to get there. Um, and so we all gathered. He lives in Hong Kong. We all, moved, we all gathered in England, and um, there was a wedding. And because it's a, because we're a Nigerian family and we have many, many relatives, complete strangers turned up to the wedding, which is kind of what we do. It's just a thing. Um, everybody is dressed up because it's a wedding, and we're Nigerians, and we do things like that. Uh, but there's a moment on the highlight reel that stands out, and it's, it's after the wedding, after the speeches, which strangely were miraculously non-awkward, and at that point where the first dance has happened, my brother and his wife did, uh, what was it, Beyonce's Love on Top. It was awesome, amazing, amazing. And then um, our family is sat in a corner, and... and the band play, and they play Luther Vandross. Those of you who are young enough not to know him, never mind. Just go find him. He's wonderful. Those of us who know of him, yes, Luther Vandross was on. And so I walk up to my family because my family are into music, and I slam my hand on the table. I didn't, I'm not subtle because I don't know what that means. So I slam my hand on the table, and I say, get up. It is Luther. Luther is on. And my family, all, we all rose to our feet. Bear in mind, there are people from their 20s to their 70s. Everybody rises as one. Slowly, but they stand like only my family can. And they don't walk to the dance floor. They strut to the dance floor. And they strut like this. My mum, my mum who is 78, is like this. Because she knows what's about to go down. My auntie Bassie, who looks like Tina Turner, although she's in denial about that, struts to the dance floor. To the dance floor. And then, and as Luther is playing, and it's all my love, I think it is, um, that everybody starts dancing. The family start dancing. And we didn't just dance. You know, it's not just because we're black. It's because we're awesome. We're amazing dancers. It's just our family. It's just what we do. And, and the, everybody, the, there is a parting of the waves as our family's on the dance floor. I look around, and I look at our family, and I think, oh, my goodness, this was not possible for our family five years ago, let alone 20 years ago, because someone hated that person, and that person hated that person, and those people weren't talking, and we couldn't have them in the same country for very long, and those people were there. And yet at this moment, at this moment, there was this picture of the redemptive journey of our family. Not complete, still drama, because that's us, but the redemptive journey of our family, as everybody for a moment is on the dance floor. And then Whitney's on, and then Stevie's on, and they're all first-name terms in our family because apparently we know them or knew them. And um, for this, these moments, these minutes, these hours, it's just all about the celebration of who we are and where we've come. It's a part of the highlight reel. There's another moment on that day that's part of the highlight reel, and it's just me standing with my brothers and my sister, and we're talking. We're just talking about stuff. But when we're talking about stuff, we're talking about family and we're talking about business and we're talking about ideas and goals and plans and politics and things that we've seen. And there's something about being with them that reminds me of who I am. Because no one, you know, like you have close people and then you have people who know you differently. My siblings know me differently. They know why I am the way I am. They know why they are the way they are. And in that moment, I was reminded of myself again. No explanations, no, oh, your voice is so loud. 
because we all sound like that. Um, no um, awkwardness, because we're as awkward as each other. We're just there. There's something about um, being reminded of who you are. There's something about a redemptive journey. The part of the Bible I'm going to read to you today that Seth gave me, make of that what you will when you see what it is, um, contains a lot of names, contains a lot of story, contains the journey of a heritage. And it's the kind of part that you'd naturally want to overlook. But we're going to hang there for a little while this morning. We're going to stay there for a little while. Because names mean things. Now, I don't know what cultures you represent here. As I said, I'm Nigerian. And in, and in our culture, names tell you something. They tell you who you are. You know what, Seth? It's really good no one sat here because I'm spitting right now. And, I, and so on one level, I don't know whether you had a personal conversation with people, but it's a work. It's working. No one has to feel drenched in love and other things. Anyway, I, I, I'm going back. Um, the thing with Nigerians and names is that our names tell our history. In my Nigerian names, I have many of them. They tell you the tribe I'm from. I'm Yoruba. They tell you my family. They tell you my place in society. They tell you everything just by my name. I don't need to have to wonder what my heritage is. My name will tell you everything you need to know. Um, with my kids' names, who, um, they have Scottish names, they have English names, they have Yoruba names, because it tells their story, it tells their heritage. Names are significant. Names are more than just an assignment and a reference point. Names tell a story. So with that in mind, I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1 and in the first 17 verses, and um, there they are. Letter, are you ready? Ready as you're ever going to be. You'll be blessed if you stay awake for these next few moments. Okay, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, or Salmon, who knows? Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Oh, a name we recognize. Let's pause for breath. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. I don't even know why I'm trying to pronounce it correctly when it's ancient Hebrew. None of us really know. Anyway, but respectful, so I'm going to try. Jehoram, oh no, Jehoram. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim and his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. Deep breath again. <clears throat> After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiahud. Abiahud was the father of Elikayim. Elikayim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eli, Eli, Elihud. I'm going to go with Elihud today. Elihud. 
maybe. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob coming into land. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Amen and amen. Now, excuse me, at first glance, when you're thinking of starting a story about the most important figure who's walked on the pages of human history, at first glance, when you want to tell the story of God and you want people to stay with you, that's not how you'd often think of how to begin. (laughs) Why not use the kind of immediacy that Mark has when Mark is like, kapow, we're right here and this is the miracle he does. Why not have all the kind of insightful and kind of witness reports that you get from Luke. Or if you're going to go all different, why not do John, who is somewhere else and is kind of all symbolic and telling you stories about Word and God and Logos and all those sorts of things. At least it's kind of dripping with deep symbolism. You can tell it's deep. But Matthew knows his audience, at least his initial audience, and he knows for them that this genealogy has a huge impact, that for them, these names do have immediacy. For them... It is insightful. For them, it is deeply, deeply symbolic. Like I said, in many cultures of the world, when you start talking about names and ancestry, you're actually sharing your identity. You're actually telling the story of your identity. I think it was, um, thinking of which commentary it was, I think it was N.T. Wright who said that whilst for some they'd feel puzzled to see the list of names, said like for people of Jesus' day, this is like a fanfare that what we just heard was this fanfare where the momentum is building and building and building until the person of the highest honor finally appears. That there's an anticipation as name after name is read. For the Jews of Jesus' day, for for the audience that Matthew writes to, they knew something was coming. They knew someone was coming when all of those names started being told. There are three sections that you see. There's, first of all, from Abraham to David. And we'll not go through them one name at a time because I've done it once. We don't need to do that again. But with Abraham and David, you have this era of promise. You have the founding father of their journey with God. This promise of people too numerous to count for this man who in the last stages of his life apparently is about to have a son, finally. We have this era where a covenant relationship is understood, where they come into this relationship with God, represented in Abraham, where, um, they, where the old identity, their old value and everything is gone, and this new life and this new protection and this new provision comes because of this relationship. We see it in Genesis 12 and 15 and beyond. And we see in that, that first set of names, all the way to David, who is the king to, to defeat or to, to define all kings, the, the one who is the greatest one of their era as far as they're concerned. And he, again, has promised this legacy um, that goes beyond his wildest dreams. The first set of names is all this promise and anticipation. The next set of names um, takes you from David to the Babylonian exile and begs the question, how can you have it all and lose it all? How How can you have everything and yet end up with nothing? And so we see the names of kings, some who are good, but others who threw it all away. People who are distracted by their own privilege and by their own power, who are indulgent, and a few who are faithful. People who have ignored the words of the priests and the prophets, 
and have walked away further and further out of their covenant relationship with God, out of what it meant to know him, until they had nothing left. Until their nation, until their prestige, until their identity is stripped from their very being, stripped from their land, stripped from all they are. And then the last section you have is from the exile to, the, to their present day, where there's this promise of hope in the darkness where there's an era where some of them return to Babylon, but the land isn't their own, and they're waiting for someone to come. They're waiting for God to make all things new. They're waiting to see if this promise really is real. And so what Matthew does is he builds up these names and reminds them of their identity and reminds them of their story. He reminds them that there is one to come, Jesus, who is still coming. Jesus, who is more than an Abraham and more than a David, but he's the one you're waiting for. That there's good news on its way. He actually opens the story by saying, hey, there's good news on its way. I know where you've been. I know who you used to be. But there's good news on its way. And on one level, that's kind of useful to know. And it's helpful to know. But as I was reflecting on these names and reflecting on the journey of the people of God, there are a few things that I wanted to bring out that may be particular for us today. Because on one level, you can look at this and say, this is great, okay, now I know that that's, names were meaningful. But is there something in the arc of those seven, 17 verses that are for us? I think the first thing it says to us is that Jesus is around and there for the people who have lost their story and need to find it again. You see, identity is given. It's not found deep within your navel. It's given. And yet so many of us have lives where life and circumstance and relationship has stripped a sense of who we are away. For the people of God, it was through war and violence and violation, through oppression, again, again and again and again. They lost sight of their land. They lost their land. They lost sight of their purpose. They lost sight of their worth and their value. And whilst our stories will be remarkably different, globally we see peoples whose lives are stripped away whose identity and worth is stripped away, even in the smallness of our own world. Maybe not in such big global circumstances, there are moments when our lives are stripped away, where we're not sure who we are anymore. We're not sure what makes us worthy anymore. And we can dress ourselves up with new things to tell us who we are. But this passage reminds us that even when your story has lost its way, there's one who can give us identity. I was in Target the other day, which is a silly thing to say because I'm in Target every day. Um, I love it. It's one of the best things about America as far as I can tell. Um, and that, says, that means I really like Target. Um, and I was struck by um, the DNA test that they're selling. Is it 23 and me? I can't remember what it's called, the DNA test. And it broke my heart a little to see them there. It broke my heart a little to think that, um, That when you don't know who you are and you're searching, that somehow, I mean, it's great that it's there, but to this poignancy, I was struck by the poignancy of people longing to find out their roots and picking it up in a grocery store in the hope that they'll find out who they were again and if they hope they can find out what country they're actually from again. And a hope that maybe they could find out what makes their body tick in the way that it does. There was something strangely poignant about the fact that Target offered it. Kind of cool, but poignant. And what I was struck by when I thought of this story is that when we're caught in the story of God, he tells us who we are. 
He tells us we are more than the sum of our grades and the sum of our relationships or the sum of our marital status, that we are more than whether we've had children or not, that we are more than whether we've achieved all that we hope for in life or whether we have a clue about our families. We are more than whether um, our families dance on the dance floor or whether they're still broken and angry, that there is a redemptive story that is yours and mine because of Jesus. Have you encountered God's redemptive story? Have you allowed him to tell you whose you are? Because these people had been occupied and oppressed for so long. They weren't even valuable. But God knew who they were and who they'd always been. And I'd say for you, whatever your journey has been, whether it's one of violation, whether it's one of loss and brokenness, God knows who you've always been. God's seen the value of who you always were. But not, not only that, he comes to remind you and lead you forward. You have a place in God's story. Have you found out yet what it means? The next set of people who came to mind when I read this were the ones who were forgotten. The ones who felt forgotten. And I thought of Abraham first, actually. I thought of Abraham because he's this guy who's waiting for a kid. And he gets a promise and it's estimated he's about 75. And he waits. I mean, 75 was already pushing it. And um, he waits, and then he waits, and then he waits, and then he waits some more. And I thought about David, who, um, as a teenager, as they estimate, is promised a kingship, and he gets the very opposite of all he's promised for years, not just for a few months. He has a guy who's a king who kind of likes taking shots at him, literally with spears. Somebody with real issues who he has to work for. And he waits. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And I think of the people of the exile who wait and wait and wait, and how easy it is to feel that you are forgotten by God when life has forgotten you. And every time I prayed about being here, I couldn't help but think of the people who might come to this time of year feeling forgotten. The Advent season and the holiday season and the Christmas season have set pieces. You know, it's a set piece that you kind of hang out with family, which is great unless you hate your family or unless your family hate you. It's wonderful, except if your family are a mess, and it's not so great. And all the beautiful pastoral scenes don't apply to you. There's a set piece around this time of year revolving around relationships, the engagements, and the good news, which is great, unless you just had a breakup, and then it's really in your face right now. It's great, and, and the, the proposal that comes on New Year's Eve, which is great, unless that doesn't apply to you, and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting. I used to get so sick of this time of year in my 20s because everybody was like, oh, we think we're going to get engaged. And I would be like, and I'm not going to. And it's going to last for months. And I'm like, Jesus, I'm not bitter, but can we have a conversation about this, please? Because I've been a real good girl for you recently. I've dressed appropriately-ish. I have, not <laughs> I have been nice to young people. I'm respectful of my elders. I'm a Nigerian. It's what we do. I'm respectful to my elders. I tithe and I give offerings. Give me a husband. What is wrong with you? Amen. Was my prayer. The set pieces of this time of year aren't always easy. The announcement that you're having a child while someone else has secretly lost another child and is wondering, and is wondering whether God sees my story right now. The one who's got a promotion coming up and you know that you're coming to the end of the line with your role, that you've been moved on and rearranged, and somehow the rearrangement means you're not part of the arrangement anymore. I was struck reading this, that Jesus 
weaves his way and his story in the lives of the forgotten. The lives whose lives don't fit into the set piece of the season. I don't know where your story fits into the set piece of the season, but I tell you this, your God sees you. He sees you. And he sees the validity of your story and your state. There are those who feel forgotten because this is a, the season of first. And by that I mean um, those events that take place in our lives. You know, like the first time without somebody. The first time after a loss. The first time after a grief. And meanwhile, around, it feels like in the, in the midst of loss, everybody else is kind of baubles and mistletoe and decorating trees and you're in agony. Your highlight reel is full of lowlights. And to that I would say God sees you. And I'm always comforted by the fact that we serve a God who walks in the wreckage and who inserts himself into a lineage full of wreckage. And it comforts me, not because I'm sick in the mind, but it comforts me because so many of our lives have been weaved with wreckage from time to time. If you come to this season feeling forgotten, forgotten by those around you, forgotten even by God. He sees you. He sees your story. And he's not bored of hearing it. And he's not tired of your grief. And he's not tired of your loss. And he's not inconvenienced by your pain. And he doesn't need you to put up a good front and seem like a really faith-filled person when you're not. Jesus comes to you too. And then the other... Um, the others that come to mind when I look at this story, um, first of all, the people who've lost their identity, second of all, the people who feel forgotten, the third one that comes to mind is if you, when you're thinking of Jesus' time and you're wanting to tell the story of his great pedigree and that he's descended from Abraham and not only that, he's descended from David and hey, this is the sign that the Messiah is coming, you don't include women in that story in that time. You don't. You don't include women in that story because that's not normal. It's normal for people to have genealogies. They would be kept by the leaders of the day. But you don't put women in the story because women don't have legal rights there. And they were the property of their fathers until they became the property of their husbands. They weren't really important. They just were things. Not, I mean, not things, but things. And what I love about women being inserted into the story is that from the very beginning, Jesus is already subverting the cultural norms and including the people who, who'd already been excluded. And then you take a closer look at the women as well. You see Tamar, and I was a bit annoyed at my commentary when I was reading this. It described her as the, sedu the seducer and the adulteress. And I thought, takes two to tango, sir. Takes two. The story of Tamar, and you'll find her in, I think, Genesis 38, is she is widowed. And part of the practices is that you're meant to marry one of, the, one of your spouse's brothers. And Judah, her father-in-law, promises that when the youngest one is old enough, this will be your husband. And again, a widow in that environment is really vulnerable, vulnerable to all sorts of things. Judah doesn't keep to his words, so she gets out of her widow clothes, gets dressed up in a different kind of outfit, veils herself, and stands somewhere accessible. Judah decides to hit on her, and um, things happen. Fill in what you will. And uh, she is pregnant. I, I always wonder at that point, didn't you kind of... I recognize people when they wear... Anyway, I'm just saying... I'm, do you know what I mean? Anyway, 
And, uh, and then Judah, is, he has to call himself to account for his actions. She's a vulnerable woman, let down and left out. You meet, um, who else do you meet? You meet Rahab, who is a prostitute, and she, she um, is aware of the people of God. She's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as well, and as someone of faith who sees what God is doing. She's included in the story of God. There's a place for women in the story of God. There's a place for those who are considered outcasts. And we see it not only in the lineage of Jesus, you see it in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We see it in the women in Luke 6, no, Luke chapter 8, Joanna, Susanna, and Mary who travel with Jesus. You see it with Mary who sits at his feet and Jesus applauds her. And as she sits, it's not just that she's having a day off, love. It's she's taken the posture of a disciple. You see it at the resurrection when he entrusts the greatest news ever heard to women whose testimony would not be considered valuable in a court of law. They're included in his story. Have you included yourself in God's story? Do you recognize that even if others have written you off, that God has something to say to you? The other has a place in God's story. The other. There's another woman I didn't mention, Ruth, the Moabitess. Moabites and the Jews, they didn't, got, they didn't get on. They kind of had this general contempt that went through for generations. They were, they were, you were allowed to reject them. And not only is she included, she's named. Not only is she named, she's an ancestor to David and to Christ. She's a sign of the kingdom coming where there's no Jew or Gentile. She's a sign of what's to come. The genealogy begins to hint and tell us who, what this man is going to mean what this heritage is going to mean. And then the last people, the last people, and on one level you look at a story like this and you say, oh, no matter where you've been, no matter what your story, Jesus is there. Boom. Or Jesus loves the marginalized. Well, yeah. And Jesus loves women. Sure he does. Read the book. It's all in there. And there's another group of people I want to mention too that are in the story, and it's people of influence. There are people of influence who are included in the story of God. Zerubbabel, that was just rolls off the tongue, was a governor in Judah. There are Abraham influential, the kings influential. And it made me beg the question, when we think of the story of Jesus in our lives, have we allowed him into our influence? There are musicians in there, there are leaders in there, governors in there, mothers and fathers in there, clearly because it's a genealogy. Stories in there where God weaves his way through. And I ask you, as we pay our part in the story of God, has he had opportunity to influence your influence? The places where you get to change the culture. For Zerubbabel, it's in a dark and painful time. And we, depending on which place we stand, often see ourselves facing dark and painful times. Is the story of God allowed to weave its way through? Because as I come to this word, and I come to these moments, and I look at this story... I'm reminded that the names don't just stop there. The names continue. And our names, all our purpose, all our identity are written in his book. Our journey isn't forgotten, it's seen. But not only does he want to restore our identity, not only does he want to give us purpose, he wants us, he wants us to keep telling the story of who God is and what he can do. He wants us to be part of what he's doing in the world, to join him in the renewal of all things. Jesus didn't come just to show up and do jazz hands. He came to make all, I don't know why I said jazz hands, it just came to my mind. He, but he comes to make all things new, 
to overturn oppressive systems, to overturn a broken world, to rebuild broken hearts, sight to the blind. The day of his favor, the year of his favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. Are you in on what God is doing? I was trying to think of how to end our time. I couldn't think of anything <laughs> at all. I'd love to, I, 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 there's no point in lying, is there? Especially when you're preaching, it's awkward. Um, I didn't think of anything. But I do want to remind you of this. As you think of your highlight reel, as you think of your highlight reel as you end the year, and maybe you think of the word that God gave you or the word you had that you wanted to live by, completely forgot it by August, and then tried to pick up again in October. Or as you think of the things that are important to you as you journey towards Christmas. May I remind you that he knows your name. He knows who you are. And where your identity's been stripped, he would love to restore you. May I remind you, particularly the forgotten thing, that he sees you and he remembers you. May I remind you that no matter who you are, you're not excluded from his story. May I remind you that there's a place for the other and the marginalized in the story of God. May I remind you that there's a place for the influential and the wealthy and those with lots to contribute in the kingdom of God. And may this story, may we remember that it's good news. But it's good news that starts on the inside and flows out to a broken world. When I think of my family, I think of we have a way to go. We are a work in progress. But I know that, and I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, we were, well, we were a kind of lifetime movie, but um, in, all, in all kinds of ways. But the thing I am grateful for, the thing I am grateful for, is that Jesus wasn't done with us, and that Jesus isn't done with us, and. Um, and that Jesus makes all things new and he takes the broken pieces and he put us back together again. And he is still putting us back together again. And he is still healing and restoring and reviving and renewing and making us whole. It's good news. And it's good news that's available to you too. It's good news for you too. And it feels an appropriate way to respond to his good news is to come to his table together. And so um, we'll move into a slightly different place. But before we do that, I'm going to give you like 10 seconds. I'm going to say it's like a minute, but it's really 10 seconds. Um, and I'm going to ask you to take a moment. You can close your eyes or just stare at me awkwardly. Whichever's less comfortable for you is good with me. Um, and I'd like you to think for a moment, if there was a part of your story you'd like God to make new, what would it be? Maybe it's something in your family dynamic. Maybe it's in your influence. Where would you like God to make your story new. If it's easier to bow your head, just take a moment. And as we come to the next stage of our journey together when we have communion, I want to invite you. Maybe that might be one of the things that you bring to him, that you bring to him. I find it rather ironic that, um, that I'm going to tell you how you do communion here when I've never been here before. But that's all right. If I get it wrong, Steph will come and correct me publicly. So, um, but before that, let me read these verses to you that are taken from the first letter to the Corinthian church. For I received from the Lord 
what I already passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The word remembrance isn't just a nostalgia thing. It's an active remembrance, anamnesis, I think it is. And you call to mind all that's been in you, and it reminds you and grounds you in who you are. Amnesia, we're familiar of the word amnesia. When you lose your memory, when you lose sight of your identity, you need to recollect. This moment as we gather at the table is a reminder of who we are because of Jesus. Who we are because the baby was born and because the baby became a man and because the man walked the earth, turning the world upside down. The man gave his life for you and I and then rose again, taking captivity captive. So as you come to the table, I invite you to remember who you are and to remember whose you are and remember what he's done for you. And the way we'll do that is this. There'll be two opportunities, okay? Two opportunities down the aisle to come and receive communion. And the way that it's done is by intention, which is basically you'll get the bread and you'll dip it in the cup. It's all gluten-free and it's all non-alcoholic for those of you who haven't been here before and we have to say that now in 2017. So, um, so um, those things will be available. And you don't have to be a member of Mill City to take communion, but also along the walls, I think there'll be people who are available to pray with you. If you want someone to pray with you into your story, if you want someone to pray with you about things being made in you, and particularly those of us who feel forgotten by God, feel free to make the most of that opportunity as well. There'll be someone to pray with you. So when you're ready, come to the table. As we go from this place, just a word of blessing. Just a word of blessing. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be get flameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you know that you're remembered. May you know that you're seen. May you know that you're known. May you know that he's not stopped writing the pages of your story. May you know that you're loved. May you know that you're significant. May you know who you are. May you know whose you are. May you live according to his God-given purpose for you. And may you celebrate every day that he gives you. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, be with you, stay with you.